When I was a young boy growing up in the hood, <laughs> I used to love the music of the street, and that's why my favorite song in this entire collection is Snoop Doggy Dogg's all-time favorite, I'm Gonna Lube You Whether You Like It or Not. You know, if you order right now, we'll send absolutely free a box of fresh air. That's right, air. Fresh air, we just can't give away fresh air. Yes, we can, from the makers of Breathe Free, makers of air for eternity. I'm your anchor, Pierre, because my bladder's empty. You know, for as long as I can remember, I've had memories, and one of my favorite... Odd things to say using a sexy voice. You have a booger hanging out of your nose. Uh, some moments from Colin Mockery on Whose Line Is It Anyway? One of the uh, shows that really inspired me, and I want to get into that after uh, this conversation that I have with Colin Mockery. That's why you chose this. You said, hey, this is pretty. looks like it could be pretty funny, could be interesting. So I got into talking to a little bit of Colin Mockery and his... Uh, upbringing and what he was influenced by and a little bit on his career here on this podcast by me tony mazer it's called check my brain and uh so thank you for checking this out and uh afterward because of time constraints he was kind of on a pr tour he's been doing a lot of these virtual tours with brad sherwood and they've been doing these whose line is anyway via zoom so they've been doing these shows. So it was kind of a little bit of a PR stop that uh, he was doing. So I was only able to get about a half hour with him. But it was a cool half hour. It was, it was an honor. And I'll talk a little bit more about that and his influence on me and a lot of other people and why he's truly an influential person in, the form of, in that form of comedy that I don't think people even realize because that show was on for a while. And it's just there's something inbred with when it comes to us with uh, improv comedy that like or ingrained not inbred good good lord am i tired i gotta get some sleep i should start drinking when i do these that'd be nice but <laughs> but it's a good conversation with colin mockery so here it is so thanks for listening and let me know and i'm gonna come back afterwards so it'll be probably around the let me see i'm gonna say to be around the 32 minute mark is when i start talking about 31 32 minutes uh, uh before i do this pre pre production and everything once i update and post i start talking so go check that out and i talk a little more about comedy and everything and why i got into comedy for people who don't really know who i am and my background and what i'm doing with my life so check it out here's colin mockery and then i come back afterwards so to make the podcast a little bit longer for your time good evening and welcome to the six o'clock news i'm your anchor oswald that ends <laughs> Our top story today. <laughs> Convicted hitman Jimmy Two Shoes McClarty confessed today that he was once hired to beat a cow to death in a rice field using only two small porcelain figures. <laughs> Police admit this may be the first known case of a knick-knack paddywhack. Colin. How we doing? This is a this is a real honor. Oh, why? Let me get you all fixed up here. There we go. Yeah, this is a real honor. I get a chance to talk to one of my uh, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this, one of my childhood idols. Oh, I know. I become like the new Mister Rogers to a whole generation. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's fantastic. How, how much time do we have with you? Uh, my next uh, thing is in half an hour. Half so. hour? Okay, great. I, I won't keep you too long, but uh, I love getting into a lot of different stuff, and I won't just dwell on whose line stuff and everything. But I, I want to go into some of your background as well. So, All right. Whatever you want. All right. So... Uh, We'll give it a give it a shot. And we're we're doing this we're doing this on uh, audio, uh, even though we can see each other. So if you want to take your clothes off and you know have a good time, enjoy All yourself. Right. <laughs> it may happen. We'll see. Yeah, you never know. Um, so uh, yeah, we got Colin Mockery here. He is uh, with Brad Sherwood. It's called the Stream of Consciousness. And uh, it, the show, and I've seen it, uh, they're doing it virtually at the Akron Civic Theater, virtually online on October 2nd, 3rd, the 9th, and 10th. I have seen the show. Uh, I've gone to this uh, Akron Civic Theater about five years ago, getting a chance to see it, and it was fantastic. Um, it was so much fun. And I guess, in a way, and Colin, thanks for being here. What can we really expect from one of these shows that... Uh, I mean, we've seen Whose Line, we've seen everything, but now it's virtual. What can we expect when we're in the, I guess, in the virtual audience and getting a chance to see it? I don't know. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, when everything uh, sort of happened and we decided, or we were kind of told we couldn't tour, uh, Brad and I tried to come up with um, this virtual tour. And uh, thankfully to our tech crew, We've come up with this technology where uh, I'm in Toronto, Brad is in Las Vegas, and we do a show together. And it actually looks like we're in the same room. Through this technology, we can go into people's living rooms and interact with them. So it's almost like our stage show, except because um, it takes place on a screen, people's attention spans you know, shorten a little. So our scenes are a little faster, quicker. Um, we have as I say, this technology, so we have at our fingertips these things that we cannot do in our live show, like our backgrounds change, we can all of a sudden be in space or whatever. So that's been interesting. Um, it is weird doing a show to no laughter. I mean, Brad is totally used to that, but it really <laughs> throws me off. Colin, I, I do stand up, so uh, I've been in front of audience where there's no laughter, so I'm pretty used to it myself. <laughs> oh, yes, I think we anyone who's done any kind of comedy, has a story of being in front of an audience where there's nothing happening. Yeah, it's. Uh, I did one in front of. Uh, I, I did a show at a this early on in my stand-up career, uh, and I, saying career is funny, but uh, I was at a taco restaurant. I was at a Mexican restaurant, and I was bombing so bad that I had to look into the audience. And I said, "You know, you're not doing well when you can hear the sound of the tortilla chips crunching in the salsa." <laughs> yeah. Oh, gee. No, you're good. Um, well, because I was going to say, because I've seen the live show that you guys do, and I have to ask about the mouse traps because you do you do one yeah. where it was you're blindfolded and there's mouse traps on the stage. Will that be done virtually? And when you actually did it in person, what what kind of experience? Who the hell thought that was a good idea? <laughs> uh, well, that was Brad's idea, and um, you know when you do a show, you try to think of the flow of the show and we thought well we need kind of a big closer and brad came up with this idea of us blindfolded doing a scene on mousetraps which you know was fine it got laughs but you know after 16 years the novelty you know wears off and um <laughs> you know i'm 62 now and there are things where i go you know what this is um 
maybe not the right thing for someone whose bones are getting a little more brittle than they used to be. Yeah, the, uh, the scar tissue doesn't build up as quite as much as you thought it would. No, no. And it was it was just a horrific game. And we tried years ago to sort of phase it out. But audiences love seeing minor celebrities in pain. So we felt we were robbing them of something. We, we started phasing it out the last couple of years and come, uh, trying to come up with new stuff. But you will not see it virtually. Yeah, you should, you should probably have like bear traps, I think, next time. You know, just in case you want to I, keep... Uh... <laughs> sure, raise, raise the stakes. Maybe just audience members throwing flaming arrows at us might be something. Yeah, it works for me. Yeah, well, I, I have to ask because I don't know what it is now. So recently I've been going down a absolute rabbit hole online on YouTube of uh, SCTV clips. And ah, yes. what is it? And just, uh, you know, and we're recording this about a week or a week and a half after the Emmys and every Emmy was Shit's Creek. Yeah, Schitt's Creek won everything, and Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara just fantastic out of the Second City troupe. What is it about Canada? What is it about you Canadians and Toronto and everything? What's in the water up there that just produces such great comedy? Um, I, you know what? I have no idea. It just, um, I mean, having Second City was a great resource because it trained uh, a lot of incredible people, like the, basically the entire cast of SCTV. And... Um, I guess because we don't get any respect actually within our country. Like uh, Schitt's Creek won all these Emmys. In our Canadian award show, they were not even nominated. Wow. So uh, because people, uh, I guess, of course, now that they've sort of been recognized in uh, America, they become like, oh yeah, they're really good. <laughs> and now we, we, it's what we do in Canada. We wait for uh, Canadians to make it big so we can point them out. And oh yeah, he's Canadian. He's from Moose Jaw. Because that was what, that was what was interesting about SCTV back in the day was that it was it was based out of Toronto originally. I guess it went to Edmonton for a year and then came back to Toronto and it was kind of like. It was the smart person's SNL at that time because that was the years where it was the post-Belushi, post-Bill Murray, post-Dan Aykroyd years, and they were getting into the Gene Domanian years of they had Charles Rocket, Gilbert Gottfried. They did have, you know, they had Joe Piscopo and Eddie Murphy, but it was kind of like the smart person's uh, SNL where SNL was more political-based humor and SCTV was – it was kind of just ripping on pop culture and pop culture yeah. icons like Joey Heatherton and Bob Hope and everything that was fantastic. And it just, when you're looking at that troupe and every single person who came from that early Second City from 1973 on just made it basically an A-lister in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, SCTV was one of the shows that really inspired me. Uh, I loved, I mean, so lucky to have worked with all of those guys and uh, become friends, uh, good friends with a couple of them. And I think, I mean, their strength was they were, they were all great writers and great performers. And you watch the show now, it's still timeless. Even though people like Joey Heatherton would not be known now, <laughs> uh, that character Totally, you understand, and still exists today. Um, all those characters are um, almost like, it's almost like Commedia dell'arte. You can just see those characters, you know exactly who they are, and the writing was smart, and they would go into experimental. Every once in a while, they would have um, like a storyline that would go through the show 
sort of with intermittent sketches, like there were these cabbage people that were taking over the station. Um, they, were, they weren't afraid to try things. And I think also they had a lot of freedom up in Canada to do kind of whatever they wanted. Yeah, and that's where that uh, the Bob and Dave McKenzie sketch kind of came out of that was, well, we'll give you a couple of minutes to do some Canadian-only material and then kind of yeah. ran with it turned into strange brew but yeah, they were for i mean they were forced to come up with the big uh, i came a thing in canada where we had to show a certain amount of canadian content on television so they were sort of forced to do these canadian characters which they uh, loved and, and enjoyed doing it became like a global hit uh, although i think it furthered some stereotypes of canadians that not are yeah, not quite true. You don't, you don't call each other hosers and uh, you know take off yeah, all the <laughs> the beer the beer drinking was about the you know the only true thing that was in that uh, sketch. Well, of course, the Molson. Uh, I mean, you you mentioned some of the the guys like Joe Flaherty and Dave Thomas, Andrea Martin, and Marty Short, of course. And you were kind of in that. Uh, would you say would you were in like the second tier of the next big uh, second city performers? Would you say that in the nineteen eighties? Oh, no. <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I I loved my uh, time there. And, you know, I was with Ryan, who I had uh, grown up with in Vancouver. So, you know, we had a lot of fun actually uh, coming up with stuff. But we had a great cast. Um, but there were so many. Uh, I mean, in um, Chicago, they had the cast with Tina Fey and Rachel uh, Dratch. Those people were there's always a next wave. And whenever you leave Second City, you always think, well, that's it for them. They, uh, <laughs> I don't know how they're, they're going to replace me. And they can do it immediately. There's so much talent out there. So I don't think the waves ever stop. Yeah, and because when you watch some of the Who's Line clips, uh, whether it's the British version or American version, I kind of get that. And you said that being kind of being influenced back in the 70s with the SCTV guys. And would you say, because I've always compared your comedy a lot and the way that you can really get to somebody like Greg Proops or Ryan Stiles uh, was Tim Conway. Was Tim Conway a big influence in the Carol Burnett show for you as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Tim Conway and Harvey Korman. Um, pretty much anyone who made, I mean, I'm old, so I've seen, uh, a lot of television from the early fifties to, to now. So there were a lot of people who I was influenced by, but definitely SCTV, definitely Tim Conway and, uh, Harvey Corman. And then all the second bananas in classic uh, shows like Don Knotts. Um, I always felt that was kind of my strength being more in support more than uh, you know leading the charge kind of the the character actors of the day yeah because I, I always thought yeah those guys always got the work they're always uh everywhere they always get to do more interesting things not that i ever had the chance to be the romantic lead but um the second banana i always found very interesting well, they kind of kept the show together, and, and sometimes a, a second banana ended up being the star of the show eventually. Like somebody like the Fonz in Happy Days was not what he who he was supposed to be, and ended up being, yeah. being the star of the show for the second half of the run after jumping yeah. the shark. <laughs> Literally jumping the shark. <laughs> 
Well, so you get into you're in Second City. It's you're getting to that point. You eventually get uh, you try out. You fail. You didn't. I shouldn't say you failed. It just was an unsuccessful venture of trying to make it in there. And it was what about three times where you eventually joined the cast of Whose Line, the British version with Clive Anderson. Yes. No. Thanks for bringing that up, Tony. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, the first time I auditioned for them. Um, they had come to, they were doing a cross country audition. They saw the second city show we were in. They loved it. It was a really good show. So they auditioned the cast the next morning at eight in the morning, which, um, for a second city cast is a horrific time because, you know, you do the show and then you're so hyped up. You, everyone just kind of hangs around and talks and drinks. So we did our eight o'clock audition and we did the thing you're supposed to do in improv. Everybody was supportive of each other because we had worked together as a cast, so I bet it was, so nobody stood out, so nobody got cast. And it wasn't until the next time we had moved, my wife and I had moved down to LA. I auditioned with people I didn't know, and it was, hey, screw you, look at me. And I got it from that. And, and then my first show sucked. So I thought, well, that's it, this little show in Britain, no one knows. Uh, and then they shot some, they were shooting some, uh, shows in New York and at that point Ryan was a part of the show and he said you know you should give Colin another chance so they did they put me with Ryan who I'd improvised with at that point 15 years already and it just sort of took off from there so I became uh, you know a, a international superstar at like 44. <laughs> well I mean you uh, when you talk about ke uh, chemistry in improv people don't realize that it's kind of where and I've heard interviews with you and Brad, and and I've heard Ryan talk about it. And I saw a Zoom show you guys did a few months ago about kind of you you know the person, so you know what's going to get them. You know what you can really hit them with, kind of like what Tim Conway would do with with Harvey Corman. He know what yeah. he's going to do to really make them barrel over. But you also want to surprise them too, and that chemistry is knowing that this guy's going to surprise me, or this woman is going to surprise me that I'm I'm performing with. And I want that to happen because you want things to be organic when it comes to chemistry or with improv. And that's where that yes and culture comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, both Ryan and Brad, I love working with them. I love the fact that I kind of know where they're going to go in a scene, but not always. But I trust them enough to go wherever and I can follow and we can have fun. And we do. Uh, I mean, I've been doing this for Oh my God, over 40 years now. And I still love it. I still enjoy it. There's never a time where, you know, um, or before this happened, walked out on stage or sit in front of my screen, getting ready to do a show where I'm not going, God, I hope this works. And then once it starts, it's just, uh, it just becomes magical and fun. And I'm so grateful that a show like Who's Line came along and sort of spotlight. Uh, the one skill I have to give me a chance to uh, keep it going and have fun with it. When you're doing improv, what is what would you say would be the balance? Is there a good balance of the material that you're coming out with and that you're thinking of on the spot with also listening to the other person? Because I'm sure there are times where 
there are certain concepts you want to go to. Like a stand-up comedian will be on stage and has his material, but then we'll start doing some crowd work. So, hey, where are you from? Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, is this your girlfriend with you? Is this your first date or whatever? And you already automatically have things in your head where there's a couple of jokes where you know it's going to get the audience, and there's others where it just comes organically. What's the balance, would you say, with improv when it comes to listening to your partner or partners and also trying to come up with something in your head? Um, wow, good question. And I, I think, uh, well, at this point, um, most of the work I do before a show is getting to the point where I truly have nothing when I go on stage. So all I have is Brad, I, I, I'm just listening. Um, so I try not to have anything at all and just trust in the fact that I'm going to be funny somehow. Um, I think there's probably times throughout the career where somebody will give you a line and you'll say something you've said before. But it, it seems rare or even uh, rarer now uh, just because Brad and I both have tried to work so hard to come up with ways of getting stuff from the audience. So it's stuff we've never had before. So every reaction is different. Every thing we come up with is different. And it's also more fun for us, I think. And also the audience can kind of tell when you've come up with something that you've used before. So most of it is just listening using your partner and just trusting that both of you are going to come up with stuff. So you could still have a concept in your head of where something you might want it to go, but not an exact line, not an exact, oh, I'm just thinking of this on the spot, quote unquote, because I that was always, I, and I know you've probably gotten sick of hearing about some any criticism with whose line where they would say, oh, those numbers, they probably performed them for years. And, you know, when I'm watching Brad and Wayne Brady sing and all this, oh, they've probably been practicing that and it's like no that actually happened on the spot like they may get get a chance to know some of the numbers that are uh, coming like as far as the music that goes behind it but coming up with those rhymes and cadence on the spot is really mm -hmm. organic and that's what that's the beauty of whose line and why people fell in love with it in all these countries I feel that the singers never got the full respect that they deserved I always felt that people um as you say, and, uh, that they were tricking the audience somehow. And believe me, there were times when I was watching going, oh, they must have known something, <laughs> even though I just gave them the style and I just gave them the title. Um, but the the fact that they were able to you know, sing a song, make it funny and make it sound good, um, that is a skill that is pretty rare. And all the guys on uh, Who's Line who did it um, were amazing at it. Yeah, and I always... Um, I mean, there was always the, is it really improvised? You guys must fall back on everything. And I thought, oh, I guess it's a compliment that we're great actors who can make it look as though we've, <laughs> we've memorized over 6,000 different scenarios that we can pull out at any point. Um, but part of the beauty of Who's Line was there was no work to it. <laughs> we would show up, uh, sit in our seats, uh, Clive or Drew or Isha would shout things at us. We'd do it, and that was it. We didn't have to. Okay, we got to learn this, or uh, that was the beauty. And also, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the crew of Who's Line, who also I don't think got a lot of credit because they had no idea where we're of our blocking at any point. They were all all the camera people were um, sort of veterans of award shows like the Oscars and uh, sports events, so they were ready to 
uh, follow the action anywhere it went. So uh, they also didn't get enough credit for what they did. Yeah, it was just an absolute and obviously seeing the American show. And uh, I, I, one of the things I always wanted to know was when I would watch it kind of, I don't want to say second run, but it would be the syndicated version they would have on ABC Family. And I always found the juxtaposition of, oh, it's ABC Family, but here's a show with, it's fairly PG rated. Did it, Was there a lot of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor that there could have been like an R-rated version of Who's Line? Or did you guys kind of keep it PG, PG-13 with those shows? We walked the line a lot. And a lot of times we didn't actually know where the line was. Um, you know, in the first season of the Drew one, um, because there was no script for the censor to look over, she was in the uh, booth watching the show. And um, I remember I was doing a scene where I was supposed to be in love with Greg Proops, so I kissed him. Suddenly there was this voice from nowhere going, can you make up something else, please? And <laughs> was like, what? And then Drew, for the next 10 minutes, nothing was usable because Drew has a real button about censorship. So he would introduce games using words that were not allowed on television. So it finally got to the point where the censor and the producer agreed we would shoot the show and then they would discuss afterwards possible sticking points the standards and practices yes there were i mean there were there was one hoedown where um they beeped ryan saying the word hand because he was making i i believe some sort of masturbation reference but where they bleeped it your mind went to a thousand different things that were worse than the word hand so and then there were things they let through uh, that I thought, there's no way that's going to make it. And then, as I say, they bleeped the word hand. So it was, we tried to stay clean for the most point, uh, And I think we did. Uh, we did sometimes maybe go a little beyond, but nothing uh, what, that would destroy the fabric of society. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. And uh, it, was, it was a great run that you guys had. And you brought it back a few years ago with Aisha Tyler. And... I mean, when when I look at the show kind of in general as looking back upon it and how iconic it really was and just when you're seeing these people that are somebody like Greg Proops, who's a stand up and Ryan's has done a lot of acting as well. And Drew is a stand up who had his own show as well. When people looked at Colin Mockery, they said, oh, that's, you know, that's the who's line guy. And you were in a lot of commercials. Do you ever look back and, and think, because you're popular enough, I would say, at least if I were a producer, I would say, oh, I would have offered Colin Mockery a show, the Colin Mockery show, and whether it's in Canada, whether it's on ABC in, in the States, whatever it was. Did that, did you ever feel that when you were starting to get some of that success as whose line was going on, that, that you're here it is, now we're going to take off. Now it's the Colin Mockery show. I'm going to have my own national radio show. I'm going to do this, this, and this. Or was this just, now I know what I'm good at. I know what my strengths are. I know that I can be the silly, goofy guy as a guest star in a TV show. Or did you feel that this was your ticket to stardom? Oh, no, I never, I mean, I never thought this would be a ticket to stardom. I mean, I'd been, I, when, at the time Whose Line Happened with Drew, I was 40. So I'd been through, you know, oh, this show could work for a while, and then it's totally forgotten. The fact that it's, uh, you know, I, I did my first uh, Whose Line in Britain, like, over 30 years ago, and the fact that it's still going is amazing. Um, it Whose Line gave me the chance to do what I love to do, and that's perform in front of uh, uh, people. I have, I usually, I, I do get offers, and it's usually, um, 
we don't have any money, but um, we really, and I love doing <laughs> things like that. I've, I've gotten to do a lot of movies where I play the bad guy, which is what I would never get cast in as a, uh, in a Hollywood movie, I don't think. So I've done a lot of in, uh, independent features. Some uh, I, I did King Lear uh, two years ago, me oh, wow. and Shakespearean, actual Shakespearean actors, which was great. And I love um, being able, having the opportunity to, to fail. I, I love doing things that I are totally outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I enjoy doing television and film, but it's it just takes so long and there's so many people involved and your performance is just like a small part of what um, the project is. I love the live stage because the onus is on you. If you suck, it's because you suck. If it goes well, it's because you were great. So I, I like having that responsibility. Because a lot of it seems like for a lot of, especially comedians, they want to do things where they can kind of have more control of their material and just doing different things. Because especially for being an improv actor and for somebody, I heard a... I forgot where I heard it was uh, an Albert Brooks interview, and it was a movie that he was going around. He's like, "Hey, you're uh, really good at doing doing improv." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I could do improv. I could do well." And it's like, "I need you to stick to the goddamn text, then." And he says that, and it's just like, "Oh, okay." So it, it kind of was one of those. Were do you think there were producers that wouldn't maybe not book you for certain things because they were afraid you were going to go off script, and that they said, "Look, we just want you to stick to the script that we have," or is it yeah. was it just that you know, oh no, that's that's the improv guy, or was it just that the offers I guess didn't come in for whatever reason, or or were you just happy? Are you happy with what uh, where you're at in your career that you just ended up being the the, the guy who's the who's line guy? Yeah, I got to be. Uh, I mean, also, part of it was my decision to stay in Canada. Um, but I think part of I I had worked I was doing a, um, a a TV show and uh, with an actress, and about three days in, she said, "You know, I was really scared about working with you." And I'm the most <laughs> non-intimidating person you could come across. And I said, "Why?" She said, "I just thought you were just going to make up all the lines." And I said, "But." That's not my job in this. There's a writer who's worked hard on the, and it's my job to get that across. You're an improv would, actor, but you're also an actor. Yeah. I would only improvise on set if the director or writer would come up and say, let's try something different just to see if we can. And that's it. Uh, when you come on set as an actor, it is your job to get those lines right and get the intent across. It, it's uh, it really is just fantastic and what you've done especially you go on YouTube and find the best of column mockery there's so many compilations of what you did scenes from a hat and hoedown and everything that have millions of views and you've made all of us laugh for so many years and so really honestly it's been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you today uh, it's uh, the at the Akron Civic Theater virtual it's the column mockery and Brad Sherwood stream of consciousness October 2nd 3rd 9th and 10th you can go to the the Akron Civic Theater's website and uh, some of those audience suggestions via Zoom. You can go check that out. So, um, uh, Colin, you're in Toronto and Brad's in Vegas, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to tune in for that. But, Colin, again, it's been an honor to talk to you. For somebody that I've been watching for much of my life, I wanted to get into some kind of comedy. I even acted out things in my own house with my parents that. I even wrote suggestions in a hat and asked them to do that when I was younger. I really wanted to get into improv, and, well, I kind of did that. It's radio. It doesn't pay that much, 
but uh, that's oh, what yeah. it is. I like the incredible pay the CW throws at me. <laughs> Absolutely. Colin, th- <laughs> thanks so much and looking forward to the shows this weekend. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Tony. Take care now. Take care. Bye. That was my conversation with Colin Mockery of Whose Line Is It Anyway fame and... Yeah, he's uh, he's been a guy who's been around for a while, and you've seen him in basically anything and everything. You find him. My mom, uh, some mystery show she watches, some strange show that's on some weird channel that I don't get. And my mom's like, you see who that is? That's Colin Mockery. Why don't you ask him about that? Because I don't watch the same crap that you do, Mom. But, uh, yes, the Check Your Brain podcast. Thanks for checking this out. Uh, I'll just talk a little bit more, only because, uh, to extend the podcast, I don't like doing half-hour podcasts. I like it to try to get to at least that 40-minute mark. So if you could bear with me for a little bit, we'll just have a little conversation, if you don't mind. Um, But uh, basically how I got into comedy was interesting. And the reason I bring this up is... Improv was kind of what I wanted to do at first until I realized that uh, eh, improv, you got to be really good at it. You got to you gotta be, live in a certain town, I think. Um, if you live in L.A., I think improv comedy is good. But the problem is what I find with improv, especially at the level of where I'm at, where I mean, it's when you get the who's line guys like Ryan and Colin and Wayne Brady and Brad and... Uh, Chip and all those other guys that were a part of those Who's Line crowd, everyone thinks they can do that who are in improv comedy. The problem is, unless you're at that level, for at least for me, improv falls flat a lot. I did a show a couple of years ago with, um, it, it was like part stand-up, part improv, and I wasn't part of the improv group. It was a troupe, and it was just like a bunch of like dads, like married dads who dad maybe have got, may have gotten laid off or did community theater and they said hey you should do you should do stand up you should do improv oh okay i could try that and it's it gets painfully unfunny and sometimes improv you're kind of entertaining your own audience meaning the people who are in improv you're probably entertaining but what about the actual audience are you entertaining them that's been my struggle when i've been doing stand up in the last several years that I've been doing this is when I go to these open mics, I see a lot of these comics that are just entertaining each other, but they're not entertaining for an audience. The problem is when bars had been open and doing more open mics before the pandemic, if they don't, if the comic who's on stage is not really known by any of the performers that are in the audience, because let's be honest, an open mic is you're just entertaining everyone else. No one's going to an open mic comedy show. For very few. So, some will, but for the most part, it's the other comics. And if they don't know you, they're not going to give you much of a reaction. You're going to get what I call phone face. Dark room, bright, lit up face, and that's all you're going to get. So it, it was discouraging at first until you realize that that's kind of where we're at right now. The reason I got into comedy, it's interesting, because when I've talked to these comedians that have gotten into it, and there's all these different reasons. Somebody said they were funny, but mostly it's because of some kind of trauma, like the loss of a family member or a breakup or a marriage, like a divorce or something. Marriage is going downhill. And they needed kind of something to kick them in the ass, and that's kind of why I did stand-up. I don't consider myself a great comedian. 
uh, not by any stretch. And I probably shouldn't ever be con- considered a good comedian because I don't work at it 100%. I'm not one of those guys that I have to be in a comedy club every single night or at least doing open mics. I That's not me. Not a huge fan, man. Um, I don't, I like doing stand-up and I love stand-up. I don't love doing stand-up, if that makes any sense. I don't, when I go on stage, and this is kind of, I was talking to my buddy Chad Zumach about this, the rush after doing a show is not as much there for me, and sometimes I feel, maybe this is just me mentally, but that the response is afterward, hey man, good set, hey, good good set, you were funny. Do you really mean that, though? Do you really mean that? And that's that's probably one of those psychological comedian problems. So I get off stage. Hey, you did good tonight. Okay. Do you, do you really mean that? Or are you just saying that because we're crossing paths in the same vicinity? So I don't know. It's that applause thing. It's uh, maybe the tears of a clown. But I got into doing stand-up after a breakup. Um, actually, I was doing stand-up before that, but I started going a little more headfirst into it after a breakup. It's kind of, it's always one of those things where when you have a, an actor or a comedian who finally makes it after their dad dies, and there's still that feeling of, I wish my dad was here to see this. And it's kind of one of those cases that I was in a relationship, and it was going downhill. I started doing stand-up, and uh, I want, I would have loved to have had her there, to be there, but kind of glad I didn't because then there were I was able to do a couple extra jokes on stage about uh, the situation about her um but yeah no it was uh, it was not fun it's not a fun time and I needed a place to vent I wasn't on the radio at that time I had gotten let go from my radio job um just a few months before I was giving tours at the Christmas Story House in Cleveland yes Christmas Story House and that was when I accepted to do, had an opportunity to open for a friend of mine at the time named Chuck Booms, and he said, uh, "Tone is how he sounds. Tone, uh, you know, you're funny. You should do some stand-up. I'm doing a show at the Cleveland Improv. You should open for me." And he had asked me before. I wasn't ready. I did. I, I did help write a joke for a friend of mine who did go on stage to do this joke. And he did two shows of it. One time it killed, the other time it bombed. And it was him being on Tinder and matching with one of the girls uh, in Ariel Castro's basement. So I swiped right uh, because I guess they have a, I guess she has an experience with bondage, and that's kind of my kink these days. So work sometimes, you know, I was just I wrote a joke. I didn't think I was going to be doing it on stage at all. I think, didn't think I was going to be doing anything on stage. But I finally decided, I'm like, what, what do I have to lose right now? So I finally did it. January 31st, 2014 at the Cleveland Improv is my first official time being on stage. And from what, what I remember, it seemed like it was good for a first time. I mean, I'm sure it's terrible. If I listen, I, I still have the audio somewhere on a, uh, I think an old recorder. I'm going to have to do a podcast where I find my old douchey radio and stand-up routines and just play them back because I, I, I would just, I would cringe myself into suicide. <laughs> but <clears throat> Lee Herlands, he, who was the, uh, who ran the improv at the time, 
Didn't know that was my first time. Figured I was doing it for a few months, maybe a year. And there were two of us who had done it for the first time, a guy named J.G. Spooner, who was our other producer on the morning show when I worked there, who was a fucking asshole. And uh, I hope the worst things happened to him. He And the reason I say that is he defrauded a charity for a girl who had cancer, who had died. He said, I'm going to use my celebrity status you know, to help raise money. Oh, that'd be great. And he took the money and never paid them. And he actually ended up going to jail for, uh, uh, well, he should have went for, I think it was like 19 months, but he only went like six months because he knew the judge. But he went up there and he was bombing. He was terrible. And then I went up. And I guess I did fairly well for my first time. Again, probably not by comparison. I'm probably way better now. But I had nothing to lose, and I just said things and thought things were funny, and I put together a bit. And Lee comes up to us. He points at JG and says, You, I never, you're fucking terrible. I never want to see you on stage again. Points to me, You, not bad. Not bad. A couple of things, you know, I would, and he's, he's one of those direct guys. Like, he'll tell you the truth. So um, it was kind of cool. Got an opportunity to do that. And, and my friends were there, and I had uh, people came up, said I did a good job. And I was on cloud nine until my second time of being on stage was at one of those open mics. They didn't know me. So I used that same material, and I'm like, well, it killed. It died in my mind at the time. It killed at the improv. Here I am in a shitty little bar in Lakewood, Ohio. I'm sure this will do well. Well, you get five minutes. I was getting lit at like two and a half. And, I, and I'm not talking drunk. I mean, the light as in the hook to get off the stage. Done. And I bombed so bad. I'm like, well, I guess that's it for stand-up. So then as I go through this breakup, and uh, I had talked to Kevin Pollack. I had talked to the Reverend Bob Levy, who will also be a guest here as well. And... It was, uh, they kind of encouraged me, and it was a, an opportunity to get on stage and do some stuff. So I parlayed that and kept going. I kept getting my voice and writing jokes and writing, uh, just writing and hearing my voice in a microphone again. It was nice to hear that. Then I got a radio job, and stand up kind of took a back seat again. So, uh, and it's been that way ever since, since I, you know, as of this recording, I still have my radio job. So, uh, I, I just kind of focus more on that and producing and everything. And now that I have the podcast, stand-up probably takes an even further step back, even because of the pandemic. A lot of the comedy clubs and a lot of the places weren't open. So I'm just like, eh, you know, I'll go on stage when I go on stage then. So I got a couple of ideas. I still write things every so often, a couple of uh, notes or even bits that I have. But, you know, stand-up is still there. I don't know about uh, improv, I'll, if I'll ever do that. I did do improv one time when I was in high school, and I actually wasn't bad at it. Not bad, but, you know, I'm not Colin level, and anytime you see that, you're like, I am not in the right business. So, Well, I want to thank you folks for bearing with me in these last uh, 10 minutes or so uh, to extend the podcast, but just why I got into doing stand-up in the first place. And, uh, I'll continue doing it to, at some capacity just so I could say, Oh, I've been doing stand-up all these years, even though it's not really that good. So, but, uh, thanks everyone. This is uh check your brain podcast. Uh, hope you leave, hope this is a five-star worthy episode. If you want to leave that, I keep saying that, but 
I'm going to keep promoting this podcast and see where it goes from here. So thanks, everyone, and uh, take care now.